In the United States, if you collect any amount of data, eventually law enforcement will come for it. And this includes data that is collected by intelligence communities, which, you know, eventually domestic law enforcement, if you have enough data on U.S. individuals, the FBI is going to come knocking on the door of the NSA and come asking for that amount of data, just like they would with, you know, Amazon Ring or something. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about government surveillance. In May, the New York Times reported that an enormous database of foreign intelligence information which is ostensibly collected so that the U.S. government can review national security threats like international terrorism activity or the development and storage of weapons of mass destruction overseas, was actually accessed by the FBI to find information about Americans. In June of 2020, shortly after the killing of George Floyd, the FBI searched the database for information about people arrested, quote, in connection with civil unrest and protests between approximately May 30th and June 18th, 2020, end quote. In a separate instance, the FBI, quote, made three batch queries consisting of approximately 23,132 separate queries, end quote, for information about presumed Americans who were suspected to be involved in the riots on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And in yet another instance, an unnamed official made a batch query for more than 19,000 donors to a congressional campaign. And All of this activity was done without a warrant. In the United States, the thinking goes that if the police want to conduct a search on your possessions, if they want to conduct surveillance on you, they must first obtain a warrant. But that isn't what happens in the type of surveillance we're talking about today. Today, we're talking about a murky, opaque surveillance regime here in the United States that has its own rules, its own technological infrastructure, its own court, and admittedly, its own tortured terminology. If you heard what I just said about batch queries and thought, what the hell is this man talking about? You are not alone. This is the frustrating world of surveillance carried out by the U.S. National Security Agency under an authority called Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act. And if you heard those words and thought, this man is making things up at this point, I can understand that because having worked on this issue in the past, I can tell you that every single piece of this system feels like it's almost designed to obfuscate the truth. But this is the truth. In the United States, the NSA sweeps up your emails without a warrant. 
the FBI looks at those emails without a warrant. And it isn't just emails. The NSA gathers all sorts of digital communications directly from telecommunications companies. It gives some of that information to the FBI and CIA for certain searches. The information gleaned in those searches, which again are done without warrants, can be used to prosecute Americans for crimes. And when the agencies screw it up, which they do, there is little oversight, with restrictions either enacted by Congress once every six or so years, or warnings and recommendations issued by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, an entirely separate judicial venue, part of the bedrock of functioning governance as our country has determined that none of us will ever have the chance to see or access or honestly even truly understand. This is surveillance under Section 702, and on December 31st, Section 702 itself, the legal authority, the law that enables this type of surveillance, is going to sunset. It will expire. Congress will renew it, there's no doubt about that, but there is a chance to reform it. Today, to help us understand what the NSA can gather, how it gathers that information, and from where, uh, whether there are any meaningful restrictions, and what the battle to renew Section 702 will look like in several months, we're speaking with Matthew Guariglia, Senior Policy Analyst with Electronic Frontier Foundation. Matthew, welcome to the show. Hello, very good to be on the show. Yeah, happy to have you here, happy to be talking about that's a funny thing to say already, right? Happy to be talking about surveillance. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I am. I am excited to have you on the show because this is actually something that is going to happen. There is a timeline. And like I said there, it's that December 31st timeline. But before we get into any of that, I wanted to talk instead about what I think is the most valuable aspect for listeners who are new to this subject, which I think is most people at home. And what I want to talk about is what does it allow, right? What does Section 702 allow the NSA to do? Yeah, so Section 702 is a, as you said, a, a foreign intelligence surveillance provision. So what it allows is for all these communications, digital communications from the United States to Europe, overseas, from one continent to another, to be gathered up by the NSA and collected in a big pool of data. And the way they do that is by two different mechanisms. One is upstream. So this is where they are tapping into the actual backbone of the internet. If your email or your communication or your DMs travel through these big under ocean cables that bring communications and bring internet data back and forth across continents, this stuff is collected directly by the NSA through what they call upstream collection. And the other way is through programs like PRISM, which is where they interface directly with the telecommunications companies and gather that information directly from, from the company itself. And as I said, all of these communications are stored in a big vat of data somewhere. First of all, it's insane, right? <laughs> um, just, just, take a moment, take a breather right there. It's insane to be able to, like you said, tap into the very infrastructure that 
carries the internet. And for folks who don't know, that is how the internet actually moves across the ocean, which is a thing. There are a series of cables, not as many as you would expect for people at home. Uh, I think it's in the low hundreds. I could be wrong, but... Some are attacked by sharks sometimes. That is a thing that happens. Yeah, and they have to insulate them against shark attacks, <laughs> uh, which is a thing. Um, and we know what they're built out of, uh, but they carry the internet, right? They carry the internet, digital communications. They carry websites. They carry traffic between uh, you contacting a website in a different country. And uh, that's how it works. And so that's one side of it. But when you also say things like, hey, your DMs, your emails, do we have any understanding of what isn't included? Because when I hear something like digital communications, I am thinking everything. I'm thinking emails. I'm thinking Slack messages. I'm thinking like my DMs on Twitter. I'm thinking my video calls on Zoom. So do we have any idea of what isn't included, if anything? Well, like Many things with the NSA and the national security apparatus at large, yes and no. So, for instance, if you are sending an email from the United States to another person in the United States, because that communication is not traveling overseas, because it is not, you know, going through these fiber optic cables or into the ocean, because you're not emailing somebody in another country, there is a chance that that sort of thing is not collected. The other thing is, you know, whether or not they have access to the actual content of the email. So for instance, if I were sending a WhatsApp or a signal message or some other encrypted message overseas, what would be collected is, I suppose, metadata, is evidence of the message, but they can't necessarily see the content like they can with my regular email back and forth to Germany or to Nigeria or what have you. Why is something like WhatsApp, why is something like messages on iOS devices, why is something like Signal, why is it different than, like you said, like your baseline email provider? Yeah, well, those messages are end-to-end encrypted, which means that it, it travels through cyberspace in a way that is shielded so that the only people who can see it are have the keys to uncode the message. And so those, those are you on your end with your phone and then the person you're messaging. So it cannot be intercepted in transit and read. So like I said, those are collected, they're stored, they're encrypted, so they look like gibberish, essentially, to the people who have collected it. But the other important thing to note is that they can be stored forever. So if 10 years from now, the U.S. government were to find a way to break encryption on kind of a mass scale, retroactively, if you were messaging people overseas, theoretically, those encrypted messages sometime in the future could be uncoded because of this program that is just hoovering up vast amount of digital communications between people overseas. So when you say something like, these messages can be stored forever, that feels uh, deeply worrying and concerning. And I frankly did not know that. Are you saying that they can be stored forever because there's some determination made where they say, okay, well, this person is a target. And so we're going to keep this batch of messages until some time down the line. What if we can learn to break encryption? Or is it something more like these messages are stored forever because no, no one is doing an audit of the information? What is happening there? 
Yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure, but I think it's more likely that this falls under the general philosophy that the NSA has had for decades now of just collect it all and build the massive amounts of information infrastructure needed to store Yoda bytes of information because they are they are storing. They are storing it all, essentially. I also am curious here, okay, once they have grabbed these messages, these communications, who can search it? How does search even work with this? Because like you said, we're looking at something like Yoda Bytes, like just, I always like to think like, is it bigger than Google, right? Is it bigger than the known internet, which is a fun thought experiment, but uh, who can search it? And how does search work when you have something of this size? Yeah, so from what we understand, the querying happens with some kind of identifier. It's usually not a name. They're not going in there and searching Matthew Griglia and seeing what they have collected in terms of my emails back and forth from a colleague in Europe. But what they do have are things like email addresses, phone numbers, IP addresses, other kinds of primary identifiers that aren't just necessarily a person's name. And is that open to rank and file NSA agents? Do we know if there are restrictions on who gets to put in an identifier, essentially? Yeah, I mean, it depends on what agency you're talking about. If it's something like a a big intelligence agency, usually there is some limited type of oversight that in which they would have to enter in some kind of justification before they enter a query or something. Or, you know, if you're the FBI where you have access to the kind of raw data that is being collected and stored, it seems like there is a lot less oversight needed in that case, which is why you have in 2021 alone the FBI making over 3 million warrantless queries of Section 702 data. That's an enormous number. Do we know if that number has gone up over time, down over time? And I also want to point out really quickly here, like, right, even if it's gone down, if it's something like 2 million or 1 million, these are still warrantless searches. And so there's still something to say, oh, okay, so it's not, it's not as bad as it was before, but it's still bad it's still very bad but i want to go back do we know if the, do we even have access to information that says these searches go up or down in number the numbers has definitely gone down in part because of how much public scrutiny numbers like you know over 3 million searches in 2021 have gotten it really freaks people out for obvious reasons. Um, and so there have been some reforms. There have been some attempts to lower the amount of queries, which it seems like has happened. There have been some attempts to minimize the amount of information that people have access to without a warrant. But still, that program is thriving and is one of the main things that has to end if Section 702 is going to be renewed this winter. I wanted to go back to something you're saying, you know, how these digital communications are grabbed, right? And you said, you know, they can tap into the cables or they can go directly to the companies. What does that look like? Because I think to most people that sounds like a gargantuan task, right? If the remit of the NSA is sort of like this collect it all, you know, or at least that's their approach, their ideology. How many requests is that to companies? And that's sort of, right, rhetorical because we don't know. But the workload seems enormous. So how does it work when they go to these companies? 
it's really hard to know. And, and to some extent, civil liberties organizations like EFF have been trying to battle in court and sue telecommunication companies for exactly this type of information and on behalf of their users. And they've been doing this for decades. And in fact, when Section 702 was passed, as part of the FISA amendments in 2008, one of the things I believe that they were fighting for in getting this thing passed was retroactive kind of immunity and, and protection for these telecommunication companies who were a little worried, I think, they were going to be held accountable because they had been giving off massive amounts of their customers' information out to the government. The companies that we're talking about here, who are they? Which companies? At the bigger scale, they are Verizon and AT&T, which both have had various arrangements with the NSA for decades now. But then, you know, we have to assume that things like social media companies, search engines, email providers, these companies as well are implicated in 702 because just of the sheer vastness of the amount of data the NSA is trying to collect and their attempts at gathering all of these digital communications overseas. And this is what you've been describing here. This is the one that we refer to as PRISM, right? That's the PRISM program. Am I getting that right? Yes. And so then the other one, upstream, is the tapping into the internet do we know anything about how that is done? Because that feels like it's also done on such a foundational level. I think it's easier, I mean, honestly, for me even, it's easier to understand like, okay, well, you go to an email provider, a company, and you say, we need these messages. And that's like, okay, I can picture that. But I, I picture maybe uh, naively, I picture the infrastructure of the internet as a sort of like non- owned thing i like to think of it as this beautiful open source world where i'm like who would you even contact like who would you contact the builder like the person who made the cable they wouldn't know how to let you spy on it and so that one's so much harder for me to understand do we know how that functions in any way yeah i mean here the point of vulnerability is where the cables come on land so we know, for instance, on the West Coast, on the East Coast of the United States, where overseas cables meet the United States. There are usually these kind of switching locations. There are in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, in a lot of major cities on coasts where these cables come ashore. There's usually a building somewhere. In New York, I think it's a giant telecommunications building uh, owned by a, a major company. For somewhere in the building is a room built and housed by the NSA, which allows them to kind of tap into all that information traveling from overseas to the U.S. and traveling from the U.S. overseas. So there are physical rooms in places in these large telecommunications buildings which have access to this raw data of the Internet that is going, you know, across the ocean and then making landfall in the U.S. And we have a picture of one of the rooms, don't we? I think we do. Yeah, I think we have, <laughs> might have a few pictures of them. Um, and I think we also have, to some extent, uh, work that people have done over the years to map where some of these buildings are. And certainly we have public maps of where all of the cables make landfall that can help people make inferences about uh, where some of these big collection areas are. Yeah. I Just to kind of, you know, I think it's important to hammer on the fact that like we know where this likely happens you know we have photos of the rooms you know we know 
Like there's a room in San Francisco that we know the name of. We know that these things are happening or we very likely know because it's been alleged multiple times through trustworthy individuals. <laughs> um, but that information is there and it's. Uh, I'm just trying to make these things tangible, right? I'm trying to make these things tangible for folks who are hearing, okay, like there's this enormous surveillance regime, but you know, depending on where you live, it could very well be in your city. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's very hard to, you know, see it kind of abstract as these giant cables under the ocean that are built, that are bringing <laughs> digital communications back and forth between continents. But really what it comes down to is that in some cities near the coast, there is a large telecommunications building and in that building, it is a room. And in that room, somebody is grabbing a vast amount of data that is traveling through the internet overseas. I wanted to move back a bit, and as we've talked about what this looks like, you know, what digital communications even are, I wanted to talk about where Section 702 even came from and what its history is. And so, kind of just broadly, right, when was it passed? Why was it passed? Yeah, so Section 702 is an extended part, an amendment to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was passed in the 1970s after the Church Committee hearing in the U.S. Senate, which was this big investigation into the decades of illegal surveillance done by the CIA, the NSA, and the FBI, which were functioning fairly lawlessly, both in the U.S. and abroad for decades. And people knew this. There was a, a growing concern about mass surveillance. There was a growing concern about completely untransparent and unaccountable governance. And so the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act created the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. And this is supposed to be a secret court in which a judge could preside over some of these attempts to collect vast amounts of information about not U.S. persons, about people overseas in the name of national security. Uh, and so if there was a judge to preside over it, theoretically, you could have some kind of checks and balance. That if the CIA wanted to spy on some people overseas but didn't have a really great reason to do it, or if their uh, attempts to watch people overseas implicated some people in the United States, had some incidental collection because the person you're watching overseas had a cousin in the U.S. that they were calling or something, that you'd have a judge who could oversee this surveillance. And what happened there is, is that the judge, which was supposed to be a, you know, an essentially a check, a balance on unaccountable surveillance, ended up becoming a big old rubber stamp and signing off on these massive surveillance programs that we eventually learn about in the last decade or so. Section 702 comes later. It comes as part of the, the FISA Amendments Act of 2008. And so in 2008, this was you know very much part of the war on terror mass surveillance regime. The FISA Amendments Act tried to create some new provisions for mass surveillance. Theoretically, some that were supposed to rein in the kind of earlier unaccountability of the NSA in the period between 2001 and 2007, but which, like the FISA itself in 1978, ends up kind of presenting its own new problems. There are a couple of things in there that I thought were extremely interesting. One, right, just that the church committee was tasked with trying to find out like where surveillance overseas was going wrong. And I think that's interesting because today... I could not see the same thing happening. 
Malaika, I could not see us finding out that the CIA and the FBI and the NSA had been acting, you know, rather wantonly for overseas surveillance and us caring about it. It feels like almost like, well, we only care if it affects us. And so am I reading that correctly? (laughs) Was it a different time? Because we have this today, you know, Um, and we're still allowing it. And so I just kind of trying to understand what was different back then compared to today that would that would produce such a thing like the church committee. Yeah, I think it I think it was a different time. I think it was an era where government mistrust as high as it was then was kind of very pervasive. It was bipartisan, it was in the air, and it was an era in which, you know, you had things like the Pentagon papers revealing that, you know, the government knew they couldn't win the war in Vietnam, which had to be leaked by Daniel Ellsberg. Rest in peace, obviously he just passed. So you had this like growing idea of of massive distrust, massive uh, secrecy and unaccountability inside the general national security apparatus. Watergate had just happened. Another big incident in which people kind of it's so distrust in in government institutions. Uh, you had the the media break in, which is you know activists, students, and professors in Philadelphia broke into a satellite office of the FBI and revealed CoinTelPro for the first time and was published in the Washington Post. You had this this just perfect storm of all of these nationwide events that were coming together all at once and really sowed massive distrust in the national security state. And and really, I think the epicenter was kind of surveillance issues and the war in Vietnam. I also wanted to go back to something you said here, right? You refer to this idea that there would be a judge uh, and what was kind of created was a secret court and the judge became a rubber stamp. What is happening there? What is this secret court? And like, why did it become a rubber stamp? Yeah, that's a good question. And I mean, and that's something in, to some extent we we don't, quite know all of the answers to because of how secretive it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, only recently have we've been able to declassify some of the quote-unquote significant opinions by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Um, and even then, I, I think it's like less than 20 opinions that, that we have from the court's history that are now declassified and we can go in and try to see kind of how the court operates and how it functions and how they reach some of the, the legal opinions they reached. But to some extent, we are we are still very much fighting for transparency. And, you know, we can assume that some of it has to do with the war on terror. You know, this has a huge impact on the expectation of rubber stamping anything having to do with national security. But to some extent, we also just we don't we don't know all of it. Like you said, we only have so many opinions that have been released. And it is sort of like imagine the work today of trying to understand the Supreme Court. But all you had after decades of opinions was, like you said, something like 20 opinions. I could choose 20 opinions from the past 100 years and I could choose another 20 opinions and our country would be a different country considering which opinions I present to the reader, you know? And you're working with such a limited band of information and when it deals with something like this, it feels tremendously unfair. Uh, Something you kind of touched on right there. Anytime national security is kind of brought up, we rubber stamp, we, we let something go forward and so that's kind of what I'm trying to get at here. Why does the intelligence community claim that they need Section 702? Because it sounds like it's something like national security. But I want to ask again, why do we allegedly need this? 
Yeah, so uh, allegedly, the national security apparatus says they need Section 702 so they could watch communications abroad. So they can see when terror suspects in one country are talking to terror suspects in another country, or even they're talking to people in the United States. And this is where you get into that incidental collection piece. And you can tell that um, the justification changes over time. Whenever Section 702 or really any other kind of provision of the Patriot Act or of FISA comes up for renewal, uh, you get to see what the justification du jour is uh, for that era. So we're coming up to this uh, December sunset on section 702 and so some of the things you've seen is you know we need it for ransomware attacks and cyberware uh we need it for fentanyl importation that section 702 will help us track international fentanyl dealers we've seen one member of the privacy and civil liberties oversight board at a hearing about section 702 even propose that section 702 might be good for for vetting asylum seekers trying to come into the country so there's always these floating of these ideas of you know what's the new scary thing that we can use to justify this this kind of very invasive program and you know national security is the old standby terrorism but increasingly they're they're trying to get more creative and coming up with new ways that they could foresee using this program it feels eerily similar to the government's efforts to break apart encryption to break apart end-to-end encryption that you know years ago I almost I am almost certain there was some relation to you know national security and then I do know that it's once been argued because it's necessary for drug trafficking international drug trade currently right it's seen as an obstacle a quote unquote obstacle to stopping the spread of child sexual abuse material and it's not that these things aren't bad they are it's that depending on the day of the week it's that suddenly, like you said, it's the it's like the reason du jour. Like it's this is the one that they think will make them successful at messaging, rather than this is the tool that is successful at stopping bad behavior. Um, it feels like it's it's almost backwards. Something you were saying there as well, I thought was particularly interesting, right? Is that the use of Section Seven Hundred Two uh, for ransomware attacks? We talk to a lot of people on this show about ransomware. And none of them have mentioned Section 702, which feels like there's a disconnect. It feels, again, like if we're talking to the people whose job it is to find ransomware operators, to attribute attacks to ransomware groups in different countries, to help with investigations, you would maybe think that at least one of them had said, oh, actually, there's this authority in the United States that we think could be really useful. And so the fact that two different things are being said about the same topic feels like it could be a little disingenuous. I wanted to kind of close out on this, again, this alleged need, and I wanted to know, have the American public ever gotten proof of Section 702 working for the stated goals of the intelligence community, right? Have we ever learned like, okay, Section 702, it did stop that terrorist attack. It did stop this drug cartel from growing. Do we have any information like that? The American public does not have information like that, namely because it's probably classified. We have heard the intelligence community say, 
yes, these programs have been used definitively to thwart some kind of bad event. And sometimes they will tell, you know, the Senate Intelligence Committee in a closed door meeting or something. So theoretically, there are people who know about the good this program does. But we, the American public, have never seen it. Will we ever? <laughs> I mean, one would think that that this is the sort of thing that they absolutely need to tell us is if these programs are actually doing good, you know, that might be important for the public to know about. But no, uh, we, we haven't been told specifically, uh, which makes it very difficult because it, it's hard to trust the national security apparatus. The national security apparatus lies all the time, constantly, in fact. Um, and so it, it's hard for the American public, especially ones who have been through the Snowden era, who have been through you know, the, the Patriot Act era, to just take their word for it that these programs are, are doing a world of good and we should just be quiet and, and take the civil liberties violations with, uh, you know, with a smile. We've kind of moved around and we've kind of not addressed, I think, a very important thing here, which is that Section 702 is supposed to be for foreign intelligence, for the surveillance of communications that, again, are not supposed to be people based in the U.S., U.S. persons. And so I think all of those things sometimes make it difficult for folks to understand, okay, so this is like this is foreign intelligence. Why should I care if I'm based in the U.S., if I live in the U.S.? How does that impact me? And so that's the question I want to bring up, right? This is supposed to be, it's even written as such. It's not even it's supposed to be. It's written into the law that you can only target foreign individuals or uh or actors behalf of a, like a foreign power so then why are we talking about it right how do u.s how do u.s persons f fall into this yeah this is i think the most important thing i'd love your listeners to take away from this as we move toward this december sunset and eventual renewal is if you remember nothing else about section 702 please remember this which is that, you know, the world is a very connected, globalized place. And if you are collecting all the digital communications of people overseas, eventually some of those people are going to get in contact with people on U.S. soil. And when they do, all of that is going to get collected as if it was two people emailing between Russia and India. And so what you end up having is in this vast pool of digital communications collected from all over the world, a good portion of them will be to or from U.S. persons and people overseas. And because all that information is just sitting there, the FBI is able to query kind of that raw collected data for U.S. persons communications which means it's just sitting there. It is not intended to spy on Americans. It is not intended to hoover up all of our information. And yet that is precisely what it does because of this incidental collection. When we say these words, right, incidental collection, that's what we mean, right? We mean that targeting the collection of people abroad is incidentally also going to collect our communications because communications are two ways, right? Exactly. It's not, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see compare the queries that the NSA, for instance, is making about two people communicating overseas versus the queries we know the FBI was doing about on U.S. soil, because something tells me that this program, which is supposed to be 
about foreign intelligence is actually being used way more to spy on Americans, um, which means that the incidental is actually the, the entire purpose of the program. <laughs> As we get to this date, right, of, the, of what's called the sunsetting of the current iteration of Section 702 as we have it. What are digital rights organizations? What are civil liberties organizations? What are you folks asking for? What actual change might be on the horizon? What do we want? Yeah, I mean, I think I think first and foremost is the end of these backdoor searches, um, which means that the, the FBI without a warrant is able to get access to all of this quote unquote incidentally collected uh, communications that Americans are sending or receiving and query that data. So they really should not be able to do that without a warrant. Just like if they were going to go to Google to try to get your emails directly, they should not be able to have backdoor access to your emails just because they are to or from somebody overseas. So ending backdoor searches has got to be the number one thing. Are there also asks in terms of something like, right, like a minimization, right? How we were talking at the beginning, like, look, this stuff can be stored forever. Are there any asks about, well, maybe it shouldn't be able to be stored forever? Yeah, I mean, w one of the things is just is just minimizing the amount of incidental collections to begin with, right? So it's not enough that the FBI maybe needs a warrant to dig into uh, U.S. person's communications that are stored because of Section 02, 702, we have to go that further step and minimize how many U.S. person's communications are collected to begin with. Back on backdoor searches, right, this term we have, it's talking about a backdoor to the Fourth Amendment. The way it stands right now that the FBI can search this information, which has been collected without warrant, and they can search it without a warrant. And that's what the back door, you know, search is. Uh, I also am curious, have we tried to get warrants required for these searches in the past? And two, why is it allowed to begin with, right? Because it just feels, when did that happen? That I can understand that the NSA is collecting all this information, but these are different agencies. And so it feels kind of interesting, I think, to hear that, okay, we're collecting all this, and then one day... The intelligence community just says, well, we want to look at it too. And then they've created a system where they get to do that without getting a warrant. I'm curious how that was created and whether or not efforts have been made to change it already in the past with prior reauthorizations of 702. Yes. Uh, I mean, this is this is part of the kind of field of dreams. If you build it, they will come model of, <laughs> of data collection where where in, in the United States, if you collect any amount of data, eventually law enforcement will come for it. And this includes data that is collected by intelligence communities, which, you know, eventually domestic law enforcement, if you have enough data on U.S. individuals, the FBI is going to come knocking on the door of the NSA and come asking for that amount of data, just like they would with, you know, Amazon Ring or something. You know, I couldn't tell you the exact moment the FBI realize there is a huge pool of U.S. persons' digital communications that is just sitting there to be accessed. And I also couldn't tell you exactly what was the moment where they, you know, what was the, I'd like to see like the white paper where somebody inside the FBI decided that they could do that without a warrant. 
But yes, to answer your other question, absolutely. I mean, Section 702 was was passed in 2008. It has undergone a, a number of renewals since then. And, and every time there has been a really uphill battle among civil rights and civil liberties groups and privacy-minded people to try to force some of these changes into uh, renewal, any kind of bill that's going to renew Section 702. And, and I, I think now we have one of the best chances we've ever had because there is so much skepticism about government surveillance, because there is a kind of renewed interest in restoring privacy back to kind of maybe pre-war on terror levels. And because, you know, things like Section 215 of the Patriot Act, which was another kind of mass surveillance program, expired in 2020. It was due to sunset, and it did. And we all thought we were going to see some really, you know, gnarly bills that were going to renew it or make it worse. And the government just kind of let it sunset, in part because maybe they could get some of that information elsewhere, but also in part because, you know, that had received a fair amount of the ire that had been coming towards the NSA since the Edward Snowden revelations. Your earlier point was that the world is increasingly connected. I know that a lot of folks might be at home saying like, well, I don't talk to someone outside of the United States. And I think I can even understand that as myself. I could be like, I mean, how many, how many times am I talking to someone not in the United States? And I do it every day because most of my team's based in the UK, and so it falls apart really quickly. And my family, uh, my aunts and uncles are not in the United States. They were not born here, and so that falls apart more quickly. And then I'm in some WhatsApp groups because my friends went to college and they stayed friends with the people in other countries. It actually falls apart very quickly. And if it's not someone you direct, like you yourself are talking to, it could be someone in your family. It could be your kids. It could be your kids going to college. All of that is to say, yes. The world is increasingly connected. It is there if you look for it. The connections are there. And that's precisely why an intelligence program that is supposed to be collecting digital communications overseas ends up becoming a mass surveillance program directed at people on U.S. soil. Yeah. Matthew, I wanted to thank you again so much for coming on today's show and helping put like some, some tangible ideas onto this surveillance law that is honestly not spoken about very much thank you yeah anytime i can use as many national security acronyms as possible i'm happy to do it (laughs) we will edit all of them out (laughs) matthew thank you again thank you to our listeners We'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Mauerbytes Labs at mauerbytes.com slash blog. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin McLeod from incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from unminus.com. Today's show has been edited by our podcast consultant, Eric Johnson, at lightningpod.fm. Thank you, folks. 